Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Alphabetical Fugazi, the only podcast that devotes an episode each to discussing every song in the band's catalog, from Fuga A to Fuga Z. I'm your host, Ian James Wright, and joining me today to discuss five corporations from the 1998 album End Hits is Adam Davis, a musician who is in the bands Narboots and Omnigon, and formerly played guitar in Link 80. Uh, Adam, welcome to the show. How's it going? Thank you so much, Ian. I'm so stoked to be on this podcast. Anybody who is listening to this for the first time, I highly encourage you, once you finish finish this episode, go back and listen to every single episode. Ian (laughs) has had on insane guests for this, like a completely star-studded cast. The only way you're going to be able to cap this off at the end is to actually have the band on some episodes. It's been really great. I've listened to every single episode and it's awesome. Well, that's really sweet of you to say. Thank you very much. And uh, I mean, stranger things have happened. I guess somebody from the band could come on at one point. Who's to say? I don't know. Um, I, I guess think that would be great. I guess it would just be a nice surprise if that were to happen. Um, well, right off the bat, uh, just in case listeners get distracted and, and wander off, I wanted to point out to everybody that uh, your band's Narboots, that's uh, with a silent G, G-N-A-R, Boots, um, you guys covered <laughs> I'm So Tired on the Fugazi tribute album Everybody Wants Somewhere, which is out on Sell the Heart Records, um, and shout out to friend of the show, Andy Pohl. It's a really cool cover. It's like, uh, I mean, a lot of people have covered I'm So Tired, and this is this is a pretty sweet take on it. It's kind of like chopped and screwed, if that's the term the kids are still using, with like yeah, a chiptune yeah. element thrown in. Um, how'd, you, how'd you approach covering that and, and having the idea to do it like that? Um, I, I really didn't want to just do a straight-ahead cover. I was pretty sure that all the other bands, judging from from who they were, you know, like Jonah from Far was on there. Um, and I knew Jonah's take would be really lo-fi with like uh, maybe a Casio drum beat and acoustic guitar. And uh, Screw 32 was on there. I knew they were going to do a really straight ahead uh, rockin' version of their song. And so I really wanted to approach it from a completely different perspective. And Nar- Narboots um, has always been kind of a weird experimental um, electronic um, performance art noise creation. And uh, I, I was like, what if I took this song and I approached it from the perspective of uh, a, a pop artist? Like, what if I tried to turn this in, into a, a song that you would expect like Justin Bieber or somebody be, to be performing? And so that was kind of the, the place where I took it from. And so I, I took it as far as I could on my own. I recorded the vocals and then recorded the music. And then um, there's a band from the from the Bay Area called Vantana Row. Uh, you might see uh, around the Bay Area, there's this uh, van covered in graffiti. And there's a, a couple that lives in there, Volley and Jamie. And they uh, have put out about 30 albums of what they call uh, Crust Wave, um, this really abrasive, glitchy, fun music um they're like my favorite band and so i i hit up jamie because i was having a hard time mixing it and getting it to really sound as polished as i wanted and uh jamie was like yeah send me the stems for it and jamie sent me back this you know high high gloss version of of what i had tried to do with all the the glitchy effects on the vocals and um 
took to uh jamie also took the the middle section where there's usually just the piano break in the song and turned it into a kind of a larger dance section with a, a sample of Guy saying uh uh could you dance without without acting like you're trying to hurt each other but he but you know he chopped it and screwed it so it's just him going could you dance could you dance could you dance and i i just love that part performing that song live is a blast because people who don't know Fugazi just think we're playing this really catchy kind of electronic pop sounding song. And then people who know Fugazi, it's like, they feel like they've stepped into an alternate universe where instead of Fugazi writing this song, some weird band that's all (laughs) electronic and smoke machines and crazy lights, all of the things that Fugazi does not do. (laughs) You know, we, we have, we have all of that stuff. I, you know, have just, bins of stupid lights and strobe lights and smoke machines um so i feel like it's it's a really wonderful experience yeah i'm sure i was gonna say i remember performing with like uh, playing on the same bill with a band who had basically foot switches for these big sort of floodlights they brought with them uh, oh yeah on the stage I was like, uh, it's pretty cool. That's not exactly my style, but I gotta say, it, it works well. It has a great effect. Yeah, that that band, The Faint, uh, they used to do that. Their bass player used to control a crazy light show, and I saw them play a little tiny coffee shop that's gone now, Capital Garage in Sacramento, and uh, it, it, they made the they made the venue turn off every single light in the venue, including the light inside the Coke machine. Like <laughs> somebody had to open up open up the plastic and, and unscrew the light bulb in there so it was pitch black and then they started their light show. And it was great. You know, it's it's nice to see that on a on a smaller level sometimes. I mean, there's bands like Fugazi who don't need it, but then if it's some sort of electronic crazy dance party, it's fun to have those lights. Yeah, definitely. To any aspiring bands out there who want to do the same thing, just like a word of caution. The venue cannot turn off the light on the exit sign. That's a fire code violation. Uh, you know, we've, yeah. we've, we've requested that. It, you know, it's not going to happen. So, um, <laughs> no, it just, that just reminded me of, uh, when I was in college, I saw this like little black box theater production of the play, no exit Sartre, uh-huh. I think. Right. And, and, and the whole time there's this big red exit sign burning over on the side, which I'm like, it's, it kind of works against the play and it kind of works for it in an ironic way at the same time. <laughs> right. Um, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, I think that really came off with with your cover of I'm So Tired. It does sound super polished and impressive. So, yeah, congrats on on the results there. It's really cool. I'll put a link in the show notes so everyone can check it out. And, uh, yeah. In in addition to that, we were were on another comp um, that was put out uh, by Lava Sox Records in conjunction with Asian Man Records uh, that was a Green Day Dookie comp. And we we did When I Come Around for that. And my took favorite kind Green of a similar song. approach. Well, it won't be when you hear our version of it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we we stretched it way way out and turned it into this really mournful dirge. Wow. Um, and then we did we did a show at Gilman where um, every band had ten minutes to perform, and so for ours it was just me on stage and I had this giant. Uh, ornate package this this gift and i was i was kind of holding it aloft while i was singing this really sad version of when i come around um 
and and at the at the apex of the song as it starts to as it's building and the the strings are soaring i i hand the package into the audience and it was packed and so kids just start grabbing at the package and tearing it open and inside the package was this giant parachute that we make people dance under and people start billowing it out pulling it over the crowd and it's a big parachute it fills the it fills all of gilman <laughs> And then, so that song, we dragged it out for like six minutes or something. Um, And so we only have four minutes left. So then the last part of our set was just a dance party. We just had like this beat playing and Narboots dance party and everybody's dancing. And we have people that just help that like plug in like all the strobe lights and stuff and kind of stick them underneath people. And it... It was the perfect way to like have a midpoint in the show because all the other bands are just playing, you know, punk rock um, as they should. They're just playing normal versions of Green Day songs. And then we just went crazy. We just turned it into a weird dance party and we were pulling kids on stage. You know, that's that's one of my what's one thing I, I feel like with Gilman that's been a little bit lost is. In the in the earlier years, uh, there I didn't feel like there was as much division between uh, the stage and the bands, and now I feel like, especially with the giant no stage diving sign up there, which I understand, but there's no reason people can't can't get on stage and dance, and we can't break down those barriers a little bit. So it was a really great experience. That's incredible. I I wish I had been there. Jeez, and it's funny I can see that working stretching out when I come around like that, the melody is so strong and it's so, it's so beautiful that it, it works yeah. that way. I can, I can envision that. And same with, I'm so tired for that matter. It's just like, it's yeah. one of those melodies that can stand up to a lot of different treatments of it. And, uh, and it works nice. Yeah. So um, something I've always, I mean, there's, you know, there's songs that are cool because there's incredible musicianship and there's interesting parts, but being able to break a song down to just the lyrics and the melody and the, and the chords, I feel like really shows the strength of a song. If you can, if you can break it down that far and then build it back up in a different way, like that really speaks to how well the song's constructed. Let's take it back a little and maybe these two things work in concert, but, you know, about your relationship with Fugazi as a listener and also as a musician, do you want to talk about how you got into them at first and, and sort of the things they taught you about being a musician and being in bands? Sure. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I've, I've talked about this a little bit on other podcasts that I've done about music, but, uh, never about Fugazi. Uh, so growing up, I grew up in Gilroy, California, which is about 70 miles south of where I am right now. Um, the, you know, the nearest record store was uh, a bus ride away um, up in the next town, Morgan Hill. And uh, so, you know, we were really reliant at that point in time on just word of mouth and people telling you stuff. And so I had a friend named Jay Solis. He uh, was the entryway for me uh, into punk rock. And so he introduced me to bands like Operation Ivy and Fugazi. And so those bands are always going to be linked in my mind, um, which, which is interesting. Cause I, I did a little digging around. I was like, those bands existed at the same time. Uh, it turns out operation Ivy and Fugazi played together on April 17th, 1988. I, I looked it up and it was actually on Tim from, uh, Rancid and operation Ivy's Facebook page. Uh, he he posted the date, but I then I checked, double checked it against the Fugazi live series, 
and it's actually he said it was the 16th it's the 17th look at that providence uh, rhode island verbal abuse uh the flyer is super cool the fugazi's written so weird on the flyer so they played with verbal assault excuse me a band called god at a place called the rocket um and operation ivy so i i think the reason i was thinking about that so much is uh when i got into fugazi uh it didn't they didn't seem any different to me than Operation Ivy. I mean, they, they had interesting bass lines. They had political lyrics. Uh, they made you want to dance in a, in a way that maybe wasn't just moshing. Uh, they had more of a groove to them. And uh, I, I remember a lot of people who saw ska as like goofy music um, saying like, oh, there's, there's no link between something as cool as Fugazi and ska. And I was like, I, I guarantee there has to be, you know, the bass lines are too close to dub. Yeah. And, and just turns out that these guys played together back in the day. So I was really happy to find that out. So anyways, that's a great so tidbit that no, I, I never realized that. So thanks for that. That's I'm yeah. interested in both those bands as well. Nice. Yeah. I, I heard you actually, uh, in the, uh, justice Brennan, uh, episode, you brought up operation Ivy. Right. I yes, I did. Very, very stoked to hear that. Um, so the first CD I bought because of my friend Jay, first piece of music I ever bought that was on a CD uh, was In On The Kill Taker, which uh, at the time I didn't realize had just came out. I always, growing up, felt like every band I got into, I felt like I got into them too late. And so <laughs> looking back now on on uh, Fugazi, I mean, they had only put out Repeater, Steady Diet of Nothing and Margin Walker and, and what, 13 songs at that point. But those are, you know, for a lot of people, that's the classic stuff. But Killtaker's such a good record. So many good songs. Um, and when I went to go buy it, I had no idea how to spell Fugazi because I'd only heard it phonetically from my friend Jay. Uh-huh. So I, I guessed it was like F-O-O-G-A-S-Y <laughs> or something like that. Um, I got to see Fugazi one time. It was on February 20th, 1999. Um, they played in Watsonville at a big rec hall. And it was it's still, all these years later, probably top, top three, top three shows. It was amazing. Um, I had a ticket to see them the next night at uh, The Edge in Palo Alto. But I flaked on the show because... <laughs> Okay, so my band, Link 80, played a show in Vacaville on February 19th. We played with a hardcore band called The Hoods, um, played with another band called Execution Style, and I I think the Lestistics, who were another ska punk band, hopped on the show. Uh, The show got shut down by the police. Um, We had to jump on stage and use the Lestistics gear to get through our set before the police showed up. Uh, It was a really exciting show. Yeah. And then... And then um, as I left the show, I found out that my, my girlfriend who had dumped me had driven out to the show to try to like patch things up. <laughs> and I had tickets, I had tickets to go see uh, Fugazi with, with a girl I, I had kind of been seeing. So then I really liked this, this ex-girlfriend. And so I had to tell this other girlfriend <laughs> that I wasn't going to go see Fugazi with her. Or not other girlfriend, <laughs> other girl that I was seeing. And she was like, really? We could just go to the show. 
And I was like, no, no, I really uh, got And I didn't end up getting back together with this girl. I should have just gone and seen Fugazi. Man, so life the, was the complicated back thing, then, right? Like, Oh, it's so complicated. You're getting kicked I, off you know, the stage so by the police. Got you got ruined. girls trying to win you back all in the space of a yeah. couple of days. <laughs> so at the show I saw, they didn't play Five Corporations. But the night before, they played in Ventura. They played Five Corporations. At Palo Alto, at the Edge, they played Five Corporations. And on the 22nd in San Francisco, they played Five Corporations. So I miss seeing them live. I miss seeing them play that song live. But I'm looking at the set list right now for the one you saw. That's a strong set. They opened with Arpeggiator. They closed with Bed for the Scraping. Nice. Yeah. It was an insane show. And the thing that really stuck with me about that show um, was all the people who were at the show who had had a a part in my life um, that kind of either related to, to punk rock or, or specifically to Fugazi, like my friend Jay, who introduced me to the, to the band, he had actually moved away in high school and he was at the show. Um, my, my other friend, uh, Mike, who was really close with me and Jay, he was at the show. Uh, Eddie Numskull booked the show. Uh, he, he used to book my band link 80 down, um, in like San Luis Obispo. So it was interesting to see him. Um, a bunch of like kind of the the kids that that were into punk rock that were kind of cooler than me were all at the show, uh, which was really I don't know interesting because they they all really loved Fugazi and I, I always wished that I could have uh, hung with them more. And just the set itself was so good. Oh, and also the the mugs opened. The mugs were uh, my friend Mia's band. Mia uh, used to work at Asian Man Records. Um, and then I think the gods hate Kansas played also, and I gave them a try. I I couldn't get into it. They were, they were fine. The mugs were better. (laughs) Well, I was fortunate enough to have seen them play five corporations. I mean, at least once because I mean, I, I've, I've told this story in, I believe the back to base episode, but yeah, the, I think it was the first show that I ever saw Fugazi at, um, there's like a couple of guys shouting for five corporations through the whole set. And like, especially like after they were doing some quiet sort of part of a song and they yelled five corporations. Uh, and then after they finished that song, Ian sort of bursts in. He's like, we're not going to play that song tonight. Cause I'm sick of your fucking mouth. And he's like, just like <laughs> haranguing this guy. Uh, uh, but it, it turns out later, like, I guess in the encore, they did end up playing it. So, <laughs> Uh, there was it was fun. You, I got to see five corporations, and I got to see Ian chew out a guy for being kind of a dick. So, best of both worlds. Yeah. During during the show that I saw them at, um, I, I got to read about this, and then uh, when I re-listened to the the show years later, uh, when I downloaded off the archive, um, some guy in our audience kept yelling six pack, six pack, and Ian walks up to the microphone and goes, "Parby, six pack." Not only do you have the wrong band, sir, you have the wrong decade. <laughs> and I just thought that was the best bit of stage banter ever. The only piece of stage banter I think that was better was from a, the similar, uh, same era. Faith No More were uh, playing uh, in support of their album, album, of the, album of the Year. And the only piece of stage banter Mike Patton had the entire show was, have you guys seen G.I. Jane? It's pretty good. And that's all he said for the entire show. 
I thought that was so funny. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> it was pretty good. Remember when she rang that bell with a bat? <laughs> Oh, I man. don't remember anything about that movie <laughs> other than Homegirl Shaves Her Head. That's all I know. I just, I remember very little about that. But uh, hey, hey, since I'm a podcaster, shout out to the podcast Friendly Fire, where they, uh, every episode, they discuss a war movie. And they haven't gotten to G.I. Jane yet, but I think they sort of mentioned it in the last episode I listened to. Ooh, have, um, yeah, have they done Red Dawn yet? Uh, I think they, wait, am I thinking of Hunt for Red October? Oh, yeah, they, no, they did Red Dawn. Yeah. Uh, Check okay, it out. I'll, I'll have to go listen to that. I love that movie. Yeah, I recommend the. Uh, it's a good podcast. They they do good work. So yeah, five corporations. You're my guest, and I like to give my guest the first word. What's the first angle we should take? Something about the music. Something about the lyrics. It is up to you, sir. Let's let's go ahead and tackle the the big the big part of this that I am am kind of lost on. So the song's called Five Corporations and yeah. and you can tell from the lyrics that it's it's basically about five corporations buying everything up and making everything the same, right? Right. Can we, can we agree on that? So I I when we decided we were going to do this song, I started asking my friends, "What are the five corporations?" Right, exactly. Nobody had the answer for me, and I feel like at the time when the song came out, I was like, "Oh yeah, duh, five corporations." Yeah, everybody wanted to act and like, now "Yeah, I'm, I know the five corporations, right?" Oh yeah, I know, I know what those are, but now I'm not sure. And I've I've seen people try to say that it's it's like the five big record labels that were around at the time, but that that really doesn't sit with me right because. I mean, Fugazi is like a perfect example of, of existing outside of that and being successful at it. Yes. Like they, they never needed a, a major label and, they, and they've sold tons of records. Just for those uh, who are curious, in 1998, when this song came out, Universal had recently acquired Polygram. So there were five major record labels at the time, which were Universal, Sony, BMG, EMI, and Warner. Uh, and then later, BMG was sold to Sony in 2008. EMI was broken up in 2012 and ended up being owned by Sony. So today there are three major record labels. So I guess maybe that's what Ian meant when he said, uh, he sang the line, check in 10 years, like see where we are, then it'll it'll be even yeah. fewer, right? But yeah, um, do you think so that was... Do you think it's about record labels? Well, I don't, um, or it, maybe it partially is, um, just to say the other thing was that, you know, I was, I was trying to look into this just like you were. Um, there's also a famous book that I have never read myself, but uh, many people have. It's called The Media Monopoly by Ben Bagdikian, which was originally published in 1983, but then there were newer editions in like 87, 90, 93, blah, 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 blah. Um, so it, it essentially i guess in 2004 it was renamed the new media monopoly anyway he wrote that the number of corporations controlling most of the media uh had decreased to five which were disney news corporation time warner viacom and bertelsman so uh, like as as far as people talking about five corporations as a number of big corporations i think that is the most famous citation that you will see there is something however Right. If you look at the other lyrics to this, it doesn't seem like it's about media companies. It doesn't seem like it's about record labels because specifically because you have the line about, you know, buy them up, shut them down, then repeat in every town. Every town will be the same. So it really it sounds more like it's talking about stuff like Walmart, wouldn't you say? 
Right. That's that's what I was taking it more as. I mean, when this came out, I was about a year into uh, really touring a lot. Like I, I toured for about five years straight, um, like eight months out of the year we were on the road and we, you know, we're doing really, really super punk rock touring, uh, playing like co-ops and squats and, and like sleeping on floors and living in our van and driving across the United States, uh, over and over again, you just kept seeing every single truck stop looks exactly the same. And, and there's, everything is, there's, there's, we're very few times when you would come across something that was different. It was, it was always Subway, Taco Bell, McDonald's, every single stop along the way. And so I always took it as, as kind of that perspective of, of being out on the road and, and all these small towns all start just looking the same because all the, all these, these corporations are just buying up all the mom and pop shops, getting rid of them. And, and everything's becoming homogenized. Were you, um, by the so, way, were you a band who on the road enjoyed stopping at Cracker Barrel? I, we, you know, Cracker Barrel was never our big one. It was Waffle House for us because it was Waffle House. You could really run some good scams there. And we were <laughs> living it. off, we were living off $5 a day. So, um, like one of the things we found out at Waffle House, um, is that if you order something that comes with toast, you can keep asking for toast and they'll keep bringing you toast and not charge you for it. So we would just eat toast. Beautiful. Like when we were really broke, we would just, we would just keep eating toast and black coffee. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was all, it was a lot of just living really, really Spartan. Yeah. The, the reason I ask is because just that's something cracker barrel, is something I associate with sort of being on the road and pulling off or like, if you want to eat dinner or something and there's no better options, but all, but also because cracker barrel, like you go in there, everyone is exactly the same. Like it's the same layout. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. the table, all the tables are in the same place. It's, it's eerie. I guess cracker barrel is not one of these huge corporations that has its claws and everything, but it's about, it's that same sort of, um, I mean, it, it probably is. I mean, there's probably, there's probably a parent company for them that makes sure everything looks the same. And they, that company probably owns other, other restaurants. And I, I noticed the same thing about waffle house. Every single waffle house looks identical inside and all of them have a jukebox inside of them. And all those jukeboxes, while they change out all the pop music that's on the jukebox, there are about 20 songs that are waffle house specific. My favorite of those being 249,200, 249,739 ways to eat a hamburger at Waffle House. And I would play it every single time we would stop <laughs> at a Waffle House. And waitresses would get so mad. <laughs> well, I had one waitress walk over and unplug unplug the jukebox and tell me, if you guys put that on again, you have to leave. Well, I'm hoping this song is on YouTube. And if it is, I'm going to put that in the show notes. Uh, that sounds like an amazing jam. <laughs> It's it's amazing. It's a it's a weird Johnny Cash knockoff. <laughs> it's really good. Is it like a is it like an everywhere man? Uh, I've been everywhere knockoff. Is that the idea? Um, it's like the verses are like him talking about like, well, I went to the Waffle House and I sat down and blah blah blah, <laughs> right. and, and then the choruses are this are this you know it's this uh, like a female chorus all singing the title of the song. Well, there's eight, uh, 844,739 ways to eat a hamburger at Waffle House. It's a oh, great man. song. <laughs> it sounds great. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, well, 
the thing about every town being the same, I guess it's worth asking to what extent that's true, to what extent America and the world has been homogenized a little bit and local culture has been, you know, paved over a little bit by corporate consolidation. So maybe next we should just go through the lyrics. Do you want to just go straight through them? Yeah, sure. So move so slowly, grow so smoothly, take so neatly. It's as if they belong and they've been here all along. So, and then it basically says the same thing, but it flips around a couple lines the next time. But same sentiment. It's as if they belong and they've been here all along. So these corporations basically get people so attached to them that, I mean, I've seen it in, in comments when people are posting anti-corporate stuff and, and people will be like, well, what about me? I've, I've worked for such and such corporation for 37 years and I have a 401k now and that's why your cousin's able to go to college, blah, blah, blah. And they get so ingrained in the culture that uh, regular Joes are, are down to defend like these faceless companies that just see you as a cog. Um, it's like they've been here all along. Yeah, that's. I think it's my favorite line of the song. Really, it's as if they belong. It's some. It's one of those things that we sort of see happen. We don't really pay any attention, and then before you know it, you can hardly remember what things were like before. You know, whatever the the big box store came to town, um, and and it just nobody cared enough when it came in to make any sort of big deal about it. Um, and then before you know it, it's just your go to place to to get what you need to get i guess yeah um, what's what's your um just out of curiosity what's what's your relationship with buying from corporate entities like amazon like do you do you order a lot of stuff from so amazon since no i mean since the pandemic has started um i don't i i used to order a fair amount of stuff off of amazon just because you really couldn't beat that convenience especially if you already had everything all saved in the computer it would pull up all the different things. And, you know, there's so many times I would try to go to a, a brick and mortar shop and buy something um, that I needed and I wouldn't, they wouldn't have in stock what I needed yeah. or whatever. And if I went on, if I went on Amazon, I could find down to the color of the item that I wanted. So, you know, I started using it a lot. And then once the pandemic hit and we couldn't leave our houses and I was seeing that, you know, they were reporting record gains and all this horrible stuff. And the, the, the workers are all getting treated terribly. I was like, okay, I need to stop using Amazon. And one of the easiest ways to break away from that I found was just to order direct from the companies that sell the things that they, that make that you want. Like I had to buy a air conditioner for the, for our home. And uh, I just bought it directly from a company that uh, wasn't a gigantic entity and that seemed to have good, uh, good business practices, good prices and good reviews. And, you know, when you do that, you're even able to scroll down to the bottom and get your little 10% off coupon for it usually. So it ends up working out. Um, I mean, we live in a, a capitalist society. We live in a world where you have to buy stuff. If you have kids, you need to be able to get stuff to like keep them alive. <laughs> if it was, if it was just me still being like a 43 year old punk rocker, alone I, I would probably need a lot less stuff but when you have to start thinking about you know the lives of these little people yeah it, it kind of changes changes your priorities a little bit 
Yeah, like, I mean, I have to admit, I order a lot of stuff from Amazon, and it's something I feel a lot of guilt about. But also, you know, right now I live in the suburbs, and sort of, I hardly ever would order stuff from Amazon, I don't think, before that, when I when I was living in a city. It, but it's one of those things where it's like, okay, now, uh, where could I go? I mean, there's, you know, the next town over, there's a brick-and-mortar bookstore that I can go to. But as far as other things, um, I'm either going to, like, Safeway or Home Depot or something. Um, so, you know, you, you're always asking, to what extent is that better than getting something from Amazon? And, of course, also there's things like, you know, there, there are always these little seductive things like Amazon Prime, which if you have that, you don't have to pay for shipping. And then you'd be like crazy to order from anywhere else. And it's sort of one of those little mechanisms, mechanisms by which they hook you in and, and keep you uh, buying from it. So, um, yeah, and, and I guess <laughs> that's evidence of the, the damage that corporatization has done uh, to the suburbs to some extent. I guess the, the closer you are to a city, you can sort of get away from that, right? Yeah, definitely. But I mean, I mean, they make it real. They make it real easy with that Amazon Prime. Plus, then you get the streaming service. Then you're watching shows like <laughs> Upload, and you're like, "Man, I can't watch this anywhere else. Where am I supposed to watch it?" You're watching I mean, these great shows with products placement. You're like, "I need to order that product from Amazon. <laughs> I got to get that product." Yeah, it's um, yeah, but uh, yeah, I guess that's that all goes into the you know move so slowly grows so smoothly like they 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 make it easy that's the problem they make it so easy for they have so many people yeah they have so many people working on the back end of this stuff trying to make it as convenient as possible you know that where even if you know i at the beginning of the pandemic i ordered some weights and uh it ended up being a, a scam they they never showed up they sent out a a shipping label and whatever. And then when it was out supposed to be being delivered, it suddenly was out missing from the system. And, but, you know, Amazon backed it up and, and, you know, refunded the money. Um, so, I mean, it, you know, they, they've, there's a lot of work going in on the back end of these things mm-hmm. to make them as, as, uh, convenient as possible, which, you know, maybe convenience is going to be our, our demise and the end of all this. Um, yeah. But hopefully we can figure out a way around it. Well, that's one of those things. There are a lot of levels on which you can argue against uh, corporations. But in, in the case of a corporation like that, the level of the consumer's direct relationship with that corporation is not really one of them. Like, I think a lot of people have good experiences in that respect. You know, easy returns, easy ordering, just convenience, convenience, good prices, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think it goes back to something that I touched on a little in the cash out episode, which is that it's one of those things where it's difficult to argue against because, I mean, not only what I just said, but it goes back to the the basic principles of capitalism and how it functions. Like uh, corporations are just sort of a natural outgrowth of that. And it's mm-hmm. one of those things where like, the, the basic tenets of capitalism seem very reasonable, like very hard to argue against. It's just that when you set that system in place and l- sort of let it go wild, um, terrible things happen that you may not have predicted if, if, you know, the evidence that we're seeing right now hadn't manifested. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to argue against as a consumer. It's hard to argue against based on simple principles of the matter. 
Um, it's just something that you have to look at the real world effects of it and understand that. And a lot of people aren't able or aren't willing to do it, which is <laughs> which is why why it's such a tough argument to have. Yeah, I mean, I was I was actually talking to um, one of my friends earlier about um, corporations and and the the ethics that we kind of ex- have you know, want to be able to expect from them. And so a lot of the arguments you see against uh, Jeff Bezos, the guy that, you know, built Amazon, you know, he he built the whole thing with a, a small business loan from his parents. And now he's like the richest human being on the world. And so with, you know, like the Spider-Man says, thing says, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And he doesn't seem to be taking responsibility for a lot of these problems where he has enough money where he could spend you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to like help solve problems like homelessness or how, or, you know, uh, people being hungry. And he, you know, we don't see him doing these things. <laughs> so that, that's where I think a lot of the real, the real pain and argument comes from against these corporations. Whereas if, you know, let's say, uh, let's say that Fugazi A to Z wanted to become, you know, the thing that you did forever, you know, eventually you'd have to have staff and you'd have to have uh, a, a office and, and eventually it would turn into a corporation. Like these things eventually grow to a certain point, but then we have to actually t- step back from it and take these, make these ethical decisions of, you know, how, how are we p- impacting other people when, when I'm printing up these Fugazi A to Z shirts that we're now selling, <laughs> you know, who's, where's the, ch- where's the child labor behind that? You know, we got to be, you know be responsible about about that sort of stuff well yeah i mean i mean that's the that's exactly the thing though like it doesn't have to turn into a corporation right it could just be a company that is satisfied with a mm-hmm. certain level of success and uh, doesn't feel the need to to go beyond that level but corporations at least the ones that are publicly traded by their nature they cannot do that they exist to earn more and more profits for the shareholders and so Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, what, what I just want to say is that it's crazy to me that uh, the world, the corporate world is not something that is taught more like in high school. At least when I was in high school, nobody taught us about it, which is crazy because you get out of school, you get like a quote unquote real job. And all of a sudden you're thrown into this world where you're supposed to, you know, you have to know these acronyms like what an IPO is, what a CMO is, what 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 he does. And you know, you have to you have to learn about the the way this whole world works. In addition to doing whatever your job is, um, it's just really weird, right. and it's such a central part of our economy that the fact that I think I feel like most people don't learn about that in the course of a normal education is so bizarre. Yeah, our educations have been <laughs> real, real not yeah, useful. At, at least, I mean, mine. Mine specifically, I feel like there's so many things that uh, were not impressed upon me at a young age that were important, like finances. Yeah. And I'm not, yeah, I'm not, I'm not even saying this as like an anti-corporate, you know, liberal hippie kind of guy who's like, we should be educated about the dangers of corporations. You know, just even that aside, just the fact that it's so central to our world and we aren't taught that about the way that it works is really weird. So that's one of the things like uh, you, you take that and then you take the people the billionaires who are behind some of these corporations and i think they're so difficult for a lot of people to understand like in particular their acquisitiveness right which which this song uh, gets at in lyrics like right this one's ours let's take another 
repeated ad nauseum. Um, that's not something most people, I think, can relate to on a personal level. Like, I, I feel like most people, mm-hmm. they feel like they have enough stuff at some point, um, even money. Yeah, you reach a place of satisfaction. Yeah. Like, even, like, right now, I'm, I'm in my little studio, and I look behind me, and I, I look at the the few guitars that I have. I have way too many guitars. Yeah. Like, I don't play all these guitars, you know? And I'm I feel like I already have... I feel... Like, I already have a glut of them. I would like to get rid of a few of them. Um, so, yeah, it makes no sense to me, this this idea of, you know, this one's ours, let's take another ad nauseum, where you just keep keep uh, acquiring and acquiring. Like, that's definitely not something that uh, I can I can relate to from, from as a normal human being. I guess clusterfuck theory is a good way of putting it. Yeah, how do you feel about that line? Well, first of all, I just wanted to say that the way Ian delivers that word is amazing. Like, it's like cluster fuck. Yeah. Like, he really bites into that word. I love it. I, I've always, so in my own music, I so I just put out an album. My band Omnigon's only about a, a year old. So it was my first chance being being like the main vocalist and the main songwriter in the band. Um, aside from the Narboot stuff. But anyways, uh I, I always shy away from, I mean, I don't have a problem saying fuck in real life, but putting it in a song, I always feel like it, and maybe it goes back to something I heard in one of the episodes where maybe it's just me thinking about it, you know, the idea of it, even though college radio doesn't really exist anymore, like the fact that somebody would have to bleep it. Um, I also had an experience where when I was a kid, I bought uh, Radiohead's Pablo Honey album because of the song Creep. And then I didn't realize that the the album version says <laughs> fuck in it. And I played it. I was like, I was like really wanted to show it to my parents. I was like, check out this song. And then it, they dropped the F-bomb and my parents were so upset. And then I realized that the version that they play on the radio, they had tagged on at the end of the record. <laughs> I was so, <laughs> so mortified. So maybe it's just part partially me not wanting to like put another kid in that sort of situation. And also just clusterfuck theory. I feel like, I mean, is is the, the, the corporate theory of doing this, is it a clusterfuck? Like, I feel like it's very well planned out. I don't feel like it's, it, it's a clusterfuck. And maybe there's something here that I'm missing, but this line has always been the one sticking point in this song for me that, like, is the part that always makes me kind of wince and go, because uh, everything else I'm on board for for this song. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I guess we usually use that word to mean just sort of a dysfunctional situation. That's how I would think of it. So it seems like, I mean, these these companies are very insidious and they, they know how to build build out and and appear that they've always been here. Yeah. Um, so, so cluster fuck theory never sat well, with Well, maybe right. it's, I mean, the lines immediately preceding that, right? Check the math here, check in 10 years, which we are... We are now 22 years after the song was released, so I guess we have some kind of perspective on that. But maybe clusterfuck theory refers to just the hypothesis that if this is allowed to go on, uh, we're going to reach like a a corporate singularity. It's it's going to turn everything into a clusterfuck. Yeah, maybe that's what it is. Yeah. Um, And yeah, and resulting in every town will be the same as we said before. And uh, so we we talked about this a little bit before we we started recording, but in one of one of your episodes, uh, one of the one of the producers or engineers uh, talked about how when Fugazi would like get on the microphone to do vocals and really scream, 
that they'd be like, gosh, you know, you really don't need to do that. <laughs> and, and I absolutely take the opposite stance on that. I've always been the person who has to scream in my bands. Um, and I enjoy doing it, but as I, the older I get, the harder it is on my voice. Um, I feel like it, it's, you absolutely have to really go for it. If someone out there knows a way to make it sound like the way he sounds on this song, which sounds painful, um, if there's a way to do it without hurting myself, please hit me up and let me know, because I would love to be able to step into the studio to record vocals <laughs> and not hurt my voice like this. But the way he hits that same, yeah. I mean, you can feel his vocal cords like twist together. Like the way he's pinching his voice to get that sound is so brutal. And it really drives drives that part of the song home. It's a great delivery. And I mean, I, I'd like to get your perspective as a recording artist. I almost feel like that word is almost like from a different take stitched together or like they had to like reset the mic and everything and like like be like all right Ian step five feet back now and and like now just take that take that line and scream same does that like does that sound like that to you at all no, I no because the everything gets I had to actually when we said we were going to do this song I actually had to look up what he says there because it's so unintelligible to me like every time that I've listened to it that it wasn't until I read it that I, I knew what it exactly was because all the other li- all the other words in that line get kind of choked out and then he really hits that same so it's like this and it really cranks on that last one so I feel like it's almost like he's he's preparing for it and he's rushing through those words to get to that part I mean he's not he's not like thinking that when he's doing it but he's like prepping his body and then releasing this thing and. W- I don't know if you've ever tried recording um, like really, really intense, like screaming. No, vocals, I've never been a screamer myself. You, so, so I, I've did a whole session recently um, with the aforementioned Vantana row where I went, I went to their van and we went to a parking lot and they have a recording studio set up in their van. And so I did uh, tracks for about nine songs and we just built up. So I started with the stuff that was more singing. And as we progressed, I moved towards the stuff where, I could just blow my voice out. And when you're screaming, it's like you're trying to like force air through the microphone to like the opposite side hmm. um, to get to get it to sound right. And I actually saw a picture recently where somebody was crouched on top of a, of a Marshall cabinet, cupping their hands in front of themselves and then and then screaming into the mic like that from about like three inches away, <laughs> just like trying to focus that force through the microphone because for some reason when when you're on a 58 and you're and you're doing it live and the pa is blasting back at you if if the sound guy isn't somebody who like really rides the faders the whole time which drives me crazy live um you can sing at a normal volume and then when you really need to hit that that crazy scream part you can do a couple things. If you're just the vocalist, if you're not on guitar, you can, you can, the sound guys hate this, but if you can cup the microphone, you can create that, you can create that channel for a second where you can force more air through that small hole to create a more distorted, heavy, screamy sound. Um, On guitar, when you're playing guitar and you're doing it, you kind of just have to choke up on the mic a lot. And, And then for the rest of the set, like if you're, usually if you can talk to a sound guy first and work it out, uh, they won't like pull down the fader on you. So then when you're just singing, it's <laughs> you're really quiet. 
um, they can leave it up and then you have to like manage that on your Well, I guess another technique, I mean, is, is what is shown in this line, which is that when he hits that, uh, that word same, there's, there's a real instrumental dropout, right? So just by the contrast of Mm -hmm. that, like, I guess it's, uh, what what drops out? I guess the bass and it's just sort of like an octave guitar the, going. The bass drops out, um, and yeah, and then there's just one so, guitar just playing. Yeah, the so that helps it stand out a little bit. So there there's a technique for you too. Definitely, definitely, just the dynamics with within the music. Okay, so then it's just basically from there in the lyrics, it goes through the the like big chant of five corporations, and then he tags it with "There's a pattern," which that that's the other line that sits against clusterfuck theory, where that's because obviously there's a pattern there's a plan to it clusterfuck that word just doesn't fit for me yeah interesting line to leave on it does it doesn't tell us what the pattern is it's just saying Mm -hmm. there is a pattern uh it's just up to us to to see it and figure out what it is um to to go back to the titular five corporations the take that i ended up having on it is that maybe the idea of Th- that that number of corporations comes from like the the book that I mentioned or the five major labels, and even though it had its genesis in that, it evolved to just become a commentary on corporate consolidation on the whole. So the five corporations don't refer to any you know five corporations that control everything in the world. It's it was just sort of a jumping off point for that that line of thinking. Right. Yeah, I saw somebody somebody posted in the notes on Facebook that the the original name of the song was Brand X. Yes, uh, a friend of the show, Unter Hobbits. Um, I you know, the thing that that made me realize too is I uh, I confess I did not do my due diligence and listen to that show that he pointed out. Um, I, I'll link it in the show notes. But I'm curious if, since it was not called Five Corporations at the time, uh, did they say that line at the end, or did the line and the name of the song, um come up at the same time because they don't say five corporations till the very end of the song right oh yeah that's that's interesting brand, brand x does definitely does not roll off the tongue as well if that was the thing that they no were no <laughs> and uh, <laughs> i i did not listen to that show also but i'll have to go back and, and check that out um wh- that actually brings <laughs> brings me to something that i wanted to say just briefly which is that so the the line five corporations goes along with that riff uh, which had been repeated several times in the song up to this point and I just wanted to say I don't think I've mentioned this before in the show that the the prosody in Fugazi the the scansion the way that their the rhythm of the words tends to match the music is I feel like almost always well done with this band where it's not um in some other bands, right? Because like with corporations to that riff, mm-hmm. you can't just shove any four syllable word where corporations is, right? That the emphasis has to mm-hmm. be on the right s- syllable. Like you couldn't say technologies, for instance, five technologies. That sounds stupid. You don't say technologies. Yeah. So, so I'm not saying it's brain surgery to get that sort of thing right. Um, just wanted to mention that I appreciate Fugazi for pretty much always getting it right and having a good sense of that. Yeah, definitely. That also talking about that riff leads me into uh, giving a hat tip to something I want to say about the music of this song, which is its time signature. How, how would you count that time signature in the verse? So it's like, it's like a measure of eight and a measure of, of seven, right? Um, yeah, I was 
Like I can never count seven. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, I've been in bands that have played stuff in seven before, but I can never count it. I just have to play it. Yeah, I th- I was like, thinking because <laughs> I'm not a drummer. I was thinking that it was seven four, but that's sort of counting it slowly, mm-hmm. or maybe it could be just like a like fast um, bars of four four, and then like half a bar somewhere i'm I'm not sure half a bar um, of th- and then a bar of three i mean it's, it all breaks down to the same way it is it's seven yeah. four but it's it's just however you want to break it down but the, I, the thing that i think is captivating about that is how how smoothly they do it like how seamless that weird time signature is where it doesn't feel like the the other song that i can think of that has like is like seven is like uh nine inch nails march of the pigs like that was like the famous seven seven eight song when i was a kid and uh and it but it sounds like it sounds like it like hiccups like every time it it comes to that weird little turnaround whereas this like it just feels it feels like four four i guess the other really famous one is money by pink floyd right yeah yeah but even money feels like it feels like an egg rolling down the hill (laughs) like it doesn't it doesn't feel smooth it feels lurchy whereas this I mean, I feel like Fugazi has, you know, it's kind of like more groove oriented songs. And then eventually they have more kind of experimental, uh, weird songs. But then, you know, there's the songs that kind of harken back to like their roots more. These, these kind of like more straight ahead, hardcore songs like this and like great cop where they just kind of unleash these barn burners. And so to, to do something like this, where you're playing so aggressively, but also that weird riff where I mean, it's mostly just chugging on A, but then there's that little that little uh, full step, uh, which the only way to do that is to like really stretch your hand out to get between those. Otherwise, you're doing some other weird stuff. Um, but it's uh, to be able to like drive that f- straight ahead, but do something so artistic and weird in there t- at the same time is. I mean, a lot of bands cannot pull that off. Yeah, I think that's really cool too. And also what might help it sound smooth is that, I mean, this comes in the midst of a sort of weird album. There are a lot of weird songs on end hits. And right. I mean, I think I I might say that Five Corporations is the most normal one, at least in the context of Fugazi as a band. Like I can, I can imagine somebody who hadn't really listened to them since Repeater being sort of turned off by a lot of the album, except maybe for this one, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely. So, yeah, especially, I mean, looking at where it is in the album, it's you know right between No Surprise, which is kind of dragged out, right? And then and then the way the way this song tags at the end, and then the way Caustic Acrostic comes in with that, that kind of arpeggio on yeah. the guitar and the uh, slide up and slide down. I mean... It, I really feel like not enough people take pay attention to where their songs fit on an album. Fugazi does such a great song, such a great job of putting each song like in the correct order on an album. So where to the point where when you hear a song end, you want the next song to happen. That's I always find it really interesting when I look at their set lists that they don't follow that because there's certain songs I can't unlink from each other like i can't hear uh like i can't hear exit only and and without thinking of reclamation right right right, exactly um yeah that's that's something that people have commented on before they really like the track sequencing in the fugazi albums um 
Yeah, and and they did do a lot of cool things live where I I feel like they they found it very interesting to butt songs up against each other that you might not necessarily uh, like you you would never put it that way on an album. Um but uh they yeah. they played so much that it was like, "Yeah, let's let's try this. Let's do this." Um I mean, they do so many cool things at the beginning of their songs that I that make it so that their whole no set list idea really works well because it's just a matter of somebody somebody picking <laughs> picking a thing to do and then everybody else listening to it and the intensity that you have to listen to each other playing to pull something like that off is I mean you really have to go inside you have to be like in a unit like this where you're all playing off of each other you can't zone out for a second you can't be staring at somebody in the audience you got to know what's happening next yeah and i guess specifically so, in this um, song the the that thing is these long pick scrapes along the the strings of the guitars that they do to start off this song which yeah you're right it seems yeah. like uh you would think fugazi had started a song that way before like it seems like a fugazi thing to do but i i guess not like this it is sort of distinctive and really lets them know, mm-hmm. all right, this is the song we're about to do. Well, and from what I can tell, I mean, I watched I watched somebody play uh, do a playthrough on uh, YouTube of this song. Um, and one of the things that I hadn't really picked up on is that they start the pick scrape up at the nut of the yeah. guitar. And they're scraping down towards the bridge, which you get a very different sound going that way than the opposite. Yeah, so way, the, the, which is the traditional way seems to be going from the bridge to the nut. Right. And they're doing nut to the so bridge. So that way the... Which is the really pitch cool. Goes up along as you scrape, right? Um, so, right. W- which is cool. So it's like you're ramping up uh, to uh, to jump into the song. Um, yeah, it's it's really cool. I mean, I I've always loved the Fugazi songs that kind of start this way, where it almost sounds like an orchestra tuning up for yeah, a second. Yeah, that's right. And then everything and then everything slams in. It's a really great effect. And. Uh, when everything slams in in this song um a bit like the rhythm is a bit like lust for life don't you think yeah definitely that kind of dun 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 yeah. dun 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 um it's and and it's, i also think it's interesting when you listen to it especially on headphones that you can really differentiate uh ian's guitar playing which i think is in the left channel and Guy's, which i think is in the right um ian plays a lot tighter and and Guy plays a lot looser um, whereas, you know, I'm pretty sure Ian's playing the exact rhythm and he's like fretting the note, like the, the E chord, jun, 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 jun. and it sounds almost like Guy is just kind of like almost string muting and just playing the rhythm on the strings. Shuck, 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 shuck. It's a lot looser. Yeah. Sound. It's actually a bit messy in the beginning. It's not one of those things where they're all mm-hmm. like locked in super tight. Um, it's, it's a little, little shaggy. Uh, the the other thing I thought was really interesting about this song is, you know, uh, usually uh, Joe's bass parts are really interesting and weird, um, doing a lot of cool stuff. He really just plays like a straight ahead, like he plays it like a straight ahead hardcore song, basically. Yeah. There's not a lot of like um, flourishes in this song. It, I mean, it definitely, you would miss him if he wasn't there and he does a couple really tasteful little things, but there's, he doesn't flex very hard on this song. Yeah. And that the one, I guess the, the third verse, just the guitars drop out and let Joe carry it. It sounds great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but all he's doing is playing. He's just playing the same riff that the guitars are playing. Yeah, and he's he's like at once um, carrying the 
the main thing of the song, but also throwing in that signature five corporations, um, yeah, whole step thing that you mentioned before. So he he ties those together mm-hmm. in a nice way. Definitely. So then um, there, after the after that kind of sloppy chug riff, they play this little uh, lead riff. They just tease it, and it's just it drops just a guitar, and then they all dive back onto the verse riff, which with no count in, no no <laughs> cue. I feel like it's such a, a bold, awesome move because you can really feel like what I was talking about where you need to be focused to hit that correctly. It'd be so easy to hit that sloppily, <laughs> but they all come down on it pretty well. Then when we hit that verse riff, it's it's open on uh, on uh, Guy's guitar. He's playing very like n- unmuted strings. It sounds like he might just be playing single note for the whole thing. wah na 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 and my favorite part of this song, which will shout out to Aaron Nagel, an amazing oil painter who used to play trumpet in Link 80. He hates this instrument, the tambourine. There's a tambourine in the left channel. <laughs> and it's just real, real subtle in there. It only picks up at a couple parts. When the vocals kick in, the tambourine drops out. Pre-chorus comes back in and tambourine Start singing again, no tambourine, pre-chorus, tambourine. And then we we're, we miss the tambourine again until right after the next the, the third verse. It comes in for just a second, and then it's gone for the rest of the song. I actually pulled out the liner notes for, for end hits. No, nobody is credited for playing the tambourine. <laughs> Tambourinists never get credit. <laughs> I mean, I would, I would like to see somebody's, somebody's name next to the tambourine, yeah. but... I guess. Not. Yeah, that's that's great. I I don't think I had noticed that. Um, I think I was distracted by the other musical elements. So thanks for pointing that out. Yeah, it's it's very it's really subtle, and it's something I only ever picked up on once I put on headphones to listen to the song. It's it's mixed so well, and it's mixed so far left that it it's it's really <laughs> like a, this very hidden element in the song. Yeah, yeah. I tambourine is it's one of those things that just really works in a lot of places i think so i'm i'm on the pro tambourine side i would say but it is one of those things that as a musician i would be hesitant to put on there because it's like if you go from not having a tambourine on something to having a tambourine on it it seems so noticeable Mm -hmm. um but i guess when it's mixed well and it's presented to you that way for the first time it almost just melts in and it's like the perfect a little extra rhythmic element yeah, I think the the reason it, it really works here is they only do it when the guitars are kind of wide yeah. open. So it just hits it just hits when that in that opening riff when there's no vocals yet and the guitars Guy's guitar is still really loud. It hits in the little pre-chorus. It hits right there. And then that's that's it. They drop it out every time the song gets sedate. There's no there's no uh, tambourine. And I'm glad nobody tried to do it live. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad they didn't have a tambourine live. I know they had they had two drummers for a minute. I'm glad they didn't uh, have him playing tambourine. <laughs> or maybe he did. Hey, you know, if somebody if somebody heard that tambourine live, leave it in the comments. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to do another like, YouTube dive, see if we can pick that <laughs> out. Um, well, cool. I mean, sounds like we're psyched about a lot of elements of this song would you like to talk about that in a more quantified way over in the segment called ratings do you like me do you like me do you like me 
where I ask you to rate this song out of five stars in the context of the Fugazi catalog. I'm going to give it a, a 4.95. Can we give it a, only because of the, the line clusterfuck theory? It makes me wince every single time, but I, I love this song. <laughs> it's such a rocking song. The, the one thing we, we didn't touch on is the, the little high. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. How could I forget? On the outro. Oh, that's so good. And the way it's mixed, I was like, there's no way they do this live. And then I watched a video of them playing it and he pulls it off. He sounds great. The one thing that I don't like that he does in the live version is in the like octave guitar that's playing over the drums with no bass. He does like a he does like yeah, a, he goes um, like down a whole step like right? a half or, step he goes up half a step that I heard him do that and if he was in my band I would have pulled him aside after the show don't do that don't do that that kills that part of the song it's such a rockin' song it really if you're if you're having a down day you can put this song on and just feel energized I think. Yeah, I I completely agree with you on that part. I think there there are a couple of places in their live set where Guy makes a choice about how to do something differently than on the album that I'm not super on board with. Um, but uh, and like yeah, this that's one of them. But definitely what you'd what you'd call a nitpick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's just, it's just one of those, one of those things. Like there's a lot of, uh, more noisy parts that he does on the guitar yeah. that, uh, I absolutely love. And I mean, I, I, in preparing for this podcast, I realized how much Fugazi has influenced me as a guitar player, like the, the SG and the, and the Rickenbacker. I mean, I don't have a Rickenbacker, but I've been playing, a um, a Sheridan for years, which is a, a hollow body, uh, so a similar similar style, and and I've also have a SG, and I I feel like a lot of the the ways the things that they use in guitars kind of in guitar parts the um the kind of like two notes close together that create tension, right. um and like the big open uh octave chords. There's a, a song the the title song of um, my new band's album No Faith uh, is this big uh octave chord uh over over like kind of a looping bass line and then it drops it drops down a similar um it's very very similar to the reclamation riff where it drops it drops down that that amount of notes and then kind of slides back up um and and i hadn't even thought about it when i did it but listening back to it and thinking about it in the context of fugazi it's it's something that's there that seems like it would be an excellent segue, so let me just say before I do that real quick that I will give this song four stars. Really good one. I like it as one of the like most quote-unquote normal songs on end hits, yet with those very interesting twists and turns of the time signature and the, uh, yeah, just the little elements that we were talking about, the, the seductive ghostly ooh at the end. This one is a strong one for me, and it's it's one of those... Uh, as I said in the the story of the the show that I went to, one of those early, I I, I, ha, I think I have an early impression of it as a song that people really like of theirs. Uh, but yeah, just it just looms large in my mind like that. So yeah, four stars from me. And let's nice. go ahead and talk about plugs. Never mind what's you can tell us more about that album. Tell us where we can get it. Anything else you want to plug? Anything like that? Go for it. Okay, so uh, the main band I'm doing right now is called Omnigon. 
Um, that's O-M-N-I-G-O-N-E. Uh, an omnigon is a theoretical shape with an infinite number of sides. Um, but if you add the E to that, then it's uh, my band name. Um, it's a ska punk band, so it's ska and it's fast punk uh, with like hardcore breakdowns. Uh, if you ever listen to Link 80 or Operation Ivy or The Suicide Machines, it's very similar to that. Um, we have an album out on uh, Bad Time Records, which is a East Bay record label uh, by Mike Sisinski of the band Kill Lincoln, who are originally from D.C. Um, so definitely check out everything on the label. He puts out really, really good records. A band called Catbite from Philadelphia. A band called uh, Gray Matter from Michigan. Dissidente from also from Philly. Uh, what else? Uh, the still alive stuck, stuck lucky split. Um, really good stuff. It's all kind of like heavier, hardcore influenced, uh, ska punk type stuff, except for the cat bite record, which is, um, much more listenable. You could put it on with your parents and they'll be, they'll be happy. (laughs) Um, I'd also like to give a quick shout out to my friend, Aaron Carnes, uh, the other half of Narboots. Uh, he has a book coming out on clash books called in defense of ska, um, he's been working on it for a long time, since about, uh, I think he had the idea in 2012, and it's finally available for pre-order. So I would really love if uh, people would uh, check him out and uh, pick up a copy of that book. It's really good, and uh, I, I, I'll i I'll put money on that there's probably something related to Fugazi in there, because Aaron was at that Fugazi show, too. <laughs> well, that sounds great. So I'll... Yeah, that plus the aforementioned uh, tribute to Fugazi that you did a song on. I'll put that in the show notes. So Yeah, definitely pick pick up a copy of that. Uh, the money from that goes uh, to help uh, Punks with Lunch. Punks with Lunches, I think. Um, I might be getting it wrong. It was originally a, a one nonprofit that shuttered, and now I think it's another one. The money goes to a good cause. Andy is uh, a great dude. I've known Andy... 20 23 years now um we've been in all sorts of different bands and played tons of different shows together um he's he's a great dude he also has a podcast called question the answers uh that i did a interview on there where i talk a little bit more about uh my own music if you're interested in that awesome sort of thing all right well thank you so much adam davis and my plugs are nothing new if you want, spread the word about the show, recommend it to a friend, give it a rating, whatever. You can reach me at fugaziA to Z at gmail.com, and you can join the Facebook group and uh, just talk about the next song that I'll be recording and get your comments in on the relevant section. And I hope you'll join me for the next episode when we will be discussing Floating Boy. Until then, keep your eyes open. This is my last 